0: Well hello my Waterproofians. Welcome back. It's time for another episode of Waterproof Records with Jacob Givens and it's just me today. No guest, just talking about an album with you and I'm incredibly excited to share this album today and I actually brought it in here on vinyl um, because it is one of my top 10 of all time. It's always hard to narrow those kind of numbers down and say that any album is um, in the top 10 because your life changes and it grows and you know, shifts and seasons and whatnot. But this is still one that when you get that desert island question, it's, it's one on there for sure. And uh, those who are very familiar with this, you know why. Because this is the only album that we got from this very talented person, Gone Too Soon. But before we get into that, we're going to do our little theme song. And uh, then we're going to get into the record. So with that, we say it's time to talk about Jeff Buckley's Grace. Here we go. Things are going to change. that kind of Waterproof Records. with Jacob Simmons. Okay. This is a powerful, heavy, emotional record. What more perfect way could you spend your time over the next hour, I guess, uh, reminiscing and reliving and learning a few things about this album and the impact it had on on people then and and how much it impacts people to this day. Um, But before we get into that fun, good music stuff, we're going to, of course, talk about our sponsor, DistroKid. Um, You hear me talk about it every week, but I, I cannot sing their praises enough. And honestly, I do have a new piece of news about DistroKid, which is they now have an iOS app. Yeah, so I think that they're going to be working on an Android one at some point in time. But for now, it's iOS. So if you haven't used DistroKid, this might be the perfect way for you to get introduced. You know, if you're more comfortable kind of signing up for apps or trying things on your phone, you can go to the App Store, download DistroKid. And from there, you can create your account and you can upload your music. And when you have it on the app, it will notify you if you have royalties, which that's one of the best parts about DistroKid is they make sure you are getting 100% of your royalties from your music on all the platforms. So other key features they have are you can see your DistroKid bank and withdraw earnings. You can get notified when you've earned royalties. So there's so many awesome ways that you guys can get your music out there. And, you know, honestly, you know, the code, my VIP code is always in the description of the episode, but it is distrokid.com slash VIP slash waterproof. So make sure when you sign up for your account and you sign up for your first year, use that link and that will give you that 30% off. Um, I'm assuming that you probably can still use that savings when you sign up for the app, but. Anyway, if you have problems with that, you can always reach out to me and I can see if I can help because you can reach me through email. I have tons of contact ways of contacting me through my link trees on my profile. And uh, before we also get in, you can see I'm wearing, it's quite faded, but I'm wearing a Waterproof Records t-shirt. And yes, this is a shirt that you could have. I do have a store. It's on um, Bonfire. I am thinking about switching stores. They've been really great and I love uh, working with Bonfire. But I'm just uh, beginning to kind of test the waters on some other platforms. So I'll keep you tuned, to- stay tuned on that and I'll let you know. But in the meantime, you could always pick your- pick up a Waterproof Records t-shirt. I have hats, I think. I have a lot of stuff with the Waterproof Records logo on it. And look, you could walk around, you could be like, I listen to the coolest podcast in the world, and it's this. Um, with that being said, let's now get into this really important, only full studio album that we got from this incredibly artist, Gone Too Soon. Jeff Buckley's grace. Wow. I mean, I remember very distinctly coming across this album as a teenager and I have it here with me. I brought in the vinyl. I should have done this more often. By the way, it is open. I just still have it in the the plastic. Um, I know you guys, most of you listen, not a lot of you watch, but for those who are only listening, I have um, newly released. This isn't the original. This is a 180 gram high quality heavyweight vinyl that was released, I think, a couple years ago. Um, it's still in the plastic, but with a slit on the side so that I can pull the record out um, just because I don't have one of those plastic sleeves yet. But here it is The Man, The Myth, The Legend. Um, yeah. This album came out in uh, 1994. Um, you think I would have had the date ready, but it's came out in 1994. And. Um, it I don't think I remember hearing it until Last Goodbye started getting some playtime on the radio and on MTV. I think that they l- released Grace First, which is an incredible song. And if you follow my videos, you've probably seen my Grace first time reaction, um, you know, video. But when I made that, really the first song I ever heard from Jeff Buckley was definitely Last Goodbye. And then I remember hearing Grace. But Grace was the one that, you know, that part that when you see me in the video and I'm levitating and I'm rising off the ground, I chose that song for that reason. Because that's the effect it, it had on me when I heard that piece of music. Um, I that That's when I remember picking it up. I remember seeing that music video. And I remember the first time I saw him in the video, I thought, what a beautiful man. What a really attractive, good-looking guy. And In some unusual way, that really was uh, difficult for him as an artist. He did not like the fact that people focused on his good looks and how handsome he was. And I can understand why, especially in the 90s. This was in the era of like the 90210, you know, brooding guys with the sideburns and their, their hair. And I mean, maybe that still goes on, but it was definitely heightened in that era. And so if you were an artist coming out and you, looked like that you would dismiss it you know if you're really into music you would look at it and be like "Ugh, no thank you you know what I mean I feel like there was that that band The Heights you know how do you talk to an angel and it was like all good looking and it just seemed so like it seems like it's manufactured and so I know that during his career when people would call him out as a being a beautiful um, you know attractive person he was even named I think in 1995 or 1996 as People magazines, you know, most beautiful people, and he was teased about it, and uh, by his friends and people that he knew, and I think somebody even approached him once to autograph it, and he just tore it up. You know, this isn't very nice, but you know, it's just something something that he didn't enjoy. But um, I remember seeing him in that video and being pretty blown away by the sound of "Last Goodbye" and thinking that was an incredible song. And I remember when I bought this CD. I put it in my car, and right out of the gate, Mojo Pin. Right, that's not what what I was expecting. This very these soulful bellowing cries coming from this vocalist, and then those incredibly frantic speed up, you know, guitar parts where it's going, you know, that was like a cacophony of noise that really kind of stirred and shook me up, and and really cleared the way for what I was about to experience on this album, and. Mojo Pin was not a song that I would be able to revisit easily for those first few listens because it was really jarring when he would carry out those notes and soar with his vocals. I loved that, but it took me a few listens to get Mojo Pin um, really, you know, under my skin. But that was not the case with, you know, song number two, Grace. Um, incredible guitar work out of the gate just this the way that's picking so fast but before i go track by track let's talk a little bit about the history of jeff buckley as an artist jeff buckley is famously known as the son of singer folk singer tim buckley but if you didn't know he had no relationship with his father his father left before jeff was even born he left the mom and left Jeff behind and so Jeff grew up without him and without knowing him and as a child Jeff Buckley went by the name Scotty Moorhead that was what everybody called him I think his family still referred to him as Scott even after he went ahead and accepted his name um, you know changed his name over to Jeff Buckley now Jeff was his middle name and Buckley was his father's name but he wouldn't take that on until later when he was growing up it was just Scotty Moorhead but Having this really estranged relationship with his father, he got a chance to meet his dad. Um, I think it was nineteen seventy-five, and he was eight. And I think there was just a couple days. I don't even think he really even got to speak with him or spend any time with him, you know, when he arrived. I wanna say it was around Easter. Jeff is there as a child, as an eight year old child and his father's busy working on stuff. And so he doesn't even really make time for his son. So there's really just no conversation had between these two. And then his dad dies of a drug overdose two months later, you know? So what an unusual thing, um, for these, both these musicians, these voices that when you now go back and you listen to Tim Buckley and you hear that voice, you can hear it, you can see it in their faces. You can see that connection, but yet there was no connection in life at all. but through their spirits, through their DNA, there was. And as I was you know learning more about his life and his relationship with his father, um, it's it was it was a lot to think about. It was a lot to process because I'm the father of two sons. I have two boys. And I am also, I have a brother, you know, connected to, to our dad. And I can't speak about the mom-daughter relationship or the mom-son relationship or the father-daughter relationship because I don't have any of those. But I do have a father-son relationship and there is something really interesting and nuanced about a father and, and son that I can speak from that i know that i've experienced and i th- i think i think that um one of one of my personal greatest fears and goals in life is to to do well and to take care of my sons and for them to have a good relationship with me and when i read this about their relationship that I can't imagine leaving your son behind your child behind. I can't imagine. Tim Buckley even wrote a song called, I never asked to be your mountain. And it was literally a song, you know, kind of dismissing this responsibility of having a child and, you know, maybe it wasn't something that he wanted. I just can't imagine walking away from it and, um, It really struck a chord with me when I was learning this and learning about what that must have been like um, to the wounded soul sound of Jeff and to grow up knowing that your father didn't really want anything to do with you. It got me. Um, I don't want to make this too much about me. I want to make it about the um, I want to make it about the album, but got me thinking a lot about fathers and sons. So Jeff Buckley doesn't know his dad. He knows his stepfather, but he's very musical at a young age. He is, you know, very passionate about songwriting. I think his stepfather introduced him to Led Zeppelin, which I think his first record that he ever owned was Physical Graffiti, and um, that really made a huge impact on him. And as a guitar player, that would carry on through his short-lived life as a musician is that he was influenced strongly by Led Zeppelin. Um, big influence on his guitar playing and you can hear it in some of those songs that he writes. And it's so cool to find out that, um, Jimmy Page considers grace to be one of the greatest albums of the nineties. He's a big fan. Um, and he even shared it with Robert Plant and they both really admire, uh, Jess work, which I think is so cool. You know, if he, uh, I don't know if that happened in his lifetime or if it was after he was gone, but pretty awesome to have your heroes that you grew up admiring to one day turn around and admire you in return. So Jeff Buckley is playing music. He goes to the, you know, he's growing up, growing up around Southern California, um, you know, around uh, the Southern California area. I want to say Orange County uh, going around there. I think he described his youth and his young years as kind of white trash and You know, stumbling around those those areas. And I know once he started playing music with bands, he played all sorts of styles, you know, jazz and hip hop and rock and metal. And he even went to the Music Institute, you know, because he was really talented, wanted to learn that that skill and that ability to play the guitar. But in the end, I don't think he thought it was a really valuable thing um, from a songwriting standpoint In time. But the thing that really brings Jeff Buckley into the eyes of the world not the world necessarily, but the music industry, is they decide to put together a tribute to his father in 1991 in St. Anne's uh, Cathedral in Brooklyn. And at this point in time, Jeff Buckley isn't really known around the world as Tim Buckley's son, and in fact, people who know Tim Buckley don't even know he has this estranged son, you know, know, biological son that he didn't have a relationship with. So it's finally, it gets through, and certain people involved in putting together this tribute to Tim Buckley invite Jeff to come out and sing. And this is the point where, at first, he he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to go out and do it because there's just no relationship, no connection to his, his father. But then it becomes this thing, and this is what I talked about, that that there was a sense of how do I pay respects to the life and legacy of a man I never knew yet? He's my father, and we share so much in common, and music brings us together. So he ends up deciding, I'm gonna go to New York. I'm gonna play at this event, and I'm gonna, you know, close out the night um, for Tim Buckley, this tribute in 1991, which is in New York. So he goes out, and he's gonna be performing at the end of the show. And from from what I read, that the tribute to Tim Buckley, it wasn't it wasn't like a really smooth running tribute. It was like a lot of these avant garde interpretations of you know, his music, and, you know, people were sitting through it, and at the very end, he's in front of, you know, a lot of the New York elite people in the industry, people high up, and they're there witnessing, and the lights go out, and out comes Jeff Buckley with his back to the audience, and he starts to play, and then they backlit him, As it begins to jump into the performances of songs like I Was Never Meant to Be Your Mountain and um, a couple of the other Phantasmagoria, a couple of the other songs there. And there's this backlight behind him and he's performing. And it's like this second coming for everybody watching the show because he's it's like they're looking up there and they're seeing this guy who has this incredible soaring voice just like um, the father and he looks like him. And the whole world is is really hearing him for the first time. I mean, not the whole world, but this group, and it's just opening up the doors for him in a way that that you know, um, I don't think he realized. You know, he, I read that Jeff Buckley said in an interview. He said his father sacrificed him for for his career, for his fame, and Jeff Buckley sacrificed his anonymity for his father. And and then I think he followed up by saying which which might have been a mistake. And I don't know. I mean, I think this we all had to have this music. We had to have grace. We had to have a few of the songs from my sketches for my, you know, sketches for my sweetheart, the drunk and the unfinished work. I begin to think now if Jeff Buckley had never gone to that tribute show for his father and been seen like that, I don't you wonder if he had ever gotten a chance to break out, because it's not like he wasn't playing music in Southern California and playing in bands. I mean, he may have not been getting a chance to really be seen and heard the way that we got a chance to hear him, but just be given that opportunity, that light. And one of those most spectacular things about the show is at the very end of his performance in front of the crowd, he's performing "Once I Was" in front of everybody, and his string breaks on his guitar. And he just decides to sing the last portion of the song, um, you know, a cappella. And that really resonated with the crowd that night um, because he, you know, in the lyrics of Once I Was, he says, you know, and sometimes I wonder just for a while, will you ever remember me? Um, powerful. This was the performance at St. Anne's that um, Jeff Buckley would be paired up with um, with Gary Lucas, um, who was a guitar player from Captain Beefheart. And this relationship is really where we get the, the ground being laid for Mojo Pen and Grace. But I'll get into that in a second. So now he's in New York. He plays this show. People know who he is. I mean, people are really starting to pay attention to this son, this estranged son of Tim Buckley, Jeff Buckley, and he starts playing at Sinead on the on the East Village of Manhattan. And Sinead, which has got this, you know, it's an Irish um, word. I hope I'm saying it right. I believe it's Sinead. Um, he starts playing at this coffee house. And this is that 1991 to 1992 period where he just goes in. He's working in New York. He's relocated from California out to New York, and he's going in. And playing music in this coffee house where nobody's really listening to him. And this is where Jeff Buckley gets his chops. This is where he develops his style. And this is truly where he's seen. This is truly where he makes a presence and name for himself. And there is an EP, the Live at Sinead, that you can get of these, you know, these songs. And a lot of different releases have been released over the years of some of those performances. But... People who were able to witness it can say, you know, here was this guy who would come in and it would just be him with his guitar, the Telecaster, and he would be performing early on to people who weren't really paying any attention. But it was so free, he was allowed to do whatever he wanted to do. So he would perform and he had some original songs that he had written, but he was doing a lot of these other people's musics and, and, and because of his, you know, really wide range of musical tastes he's doing all sorts of stuff you know he's doing the old classics he's doing classical pieces he's doing reggae he's doing he's doing bad brains he's doing all sorts of things and people would describe it they would say well they're not really covers because Jeff would take the song and transform it into his own style and this is what's so interesting because this lays the foundation for what we get on grace And I don't even think I realized at the time when this album came out and I got it somewhere in 95, which would have been when, um, you know, Last Goodbye was being played a lot. I don't think I realized when I picked up this album that three songs on here were quote unquote covers. They were definitely made uniquely his own, but that was because he just didn't have enough original material or at least that he was happy with to fill out a 10 song album. And so these covers, these interpretations, these pieces of music that, um, that would end up on his, his debut album, they were really formed from this time he's performing at Sinead. He's performing these songs, really finding, you know, whether it's an acapella break on a song or, you know, what you would later hear on Corpus Christi Carol or the Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah These were all things that he was developing while playing in a coffee house. And slowly but surely, people would start stopping, drinking their coffee and chit-chatting and ignoring him. And they'd be paying attention and really interested in this unbelievably beautiful voice that was singing in this coffee house. And, you know, before long, it was crowded. It was packed outside so that people could come by and see Jeff Buckley perform at this venue, which is gone now. Uh, I believe that the venue closed down somewhere around 2007. But this is such an interesting idea of who he was as an artist and how he sculpted and molded that incredible sound. Now, obviously, he had a beautiful, unbelievable singing range. That's one of the first things you think about about Jeff Buckley. He's one of the greatest voices of our time. There's many, I'm not saying, you know, of, of, of my time. Um, He's one of those voices that you go, it's hard to even match or replicate that kind of singing style. And don't get me wrong, I totally tried. I totally tried. Um, if you've heard my album from Out of the Deep End, which was released on DistroKid, I I was definitely strongly inspired by Jeff Buckley. Um, definitely Grace and Sketches. And you can hear when I had a much stronger falsetto and I could reach those higher registers. You can hear it on the songs on that album. If you've never listened to my album from Out of the Deep End, it's on Spotify. It's on all those streaming services. And you can definitely hear the Buckley influence in there. Now, I never, personally, I know, I don't think I had that level of control nor the soaring range of his but I think on that album, as as uh, amateurish as, as it was being recorded in my place, I think I definitely had the heart. I think I had a lot of the heart and motivation to try to, you know, channel some of that Buckley energy in those pieces of music. I mean, there's definitely Pumpkins in there. There's Elliot Smith in there. Um, there's there's The Cure in there. There's, oh, geez, there's like Ben Folds. There's all sorts of different influences in my, um, in my music. Tory, um, whatever I could do. But there's definitely a, a huge overarching Jeff Buckley um, touch in there. So, boy, I, di- I didn't realize how, how much it would be easy to get kind of lost in talking about this process because it is an interesting story. They've made several documentaries about his life. You know, somebody who um, dies at 30, you know, not to jump ahead in the story, but he drowns in, uh, you know, May 29th of 1997. And that's that's where we don't get any more of his music. But that's me jumping ahead because we're still on the, the stage of he's playing at Sinead and people are blown away by this incredible vocal sound. So it's around this time that he's being courted by record labels. People want to sign Jeff Buckley and he ends up choosing Columbia, owned by Sony. He ends up choosing Columbia at the time because Bob Dylan was on it. He was like, no. Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, you know, people that he really loved and respected as musicians. And he was like, well, that's the one. And this is where the process of recording his first full length album, you know, the live at Sheena had come out in 93, I think. And so now it's time to, to record the first full length album through Columbia. So he's assembling together the songs. But at this point in his career, he is excited to have a band. He wants to put a band together and um, you know, I wish I could say that I knew these musicians names by heart, but I didn't. Their name isn't on the on the cover, so I had to look them up and read a little bit about their story. I have them um I have them right here. Matt Johnson on drums, not the same Matt Johnson from the the Michael Teague on guitar and Mick Gronda on bass. And it's interesting because so the the sessions are coming, they're fast approaching. And Jeff Buckley does not have a band. He does not have musicians, and weeks are going by, and he's just kind of lying to the the label at the time about, oh yeah, the recording. It's you know we're just rehearsing and we're gearing up, but he doesn't have a band. So he's he's on the hunt, looking for these musicians to put together, and he chose you know three young guys. These guys were like in their early twenties, they were not seasoned session musicians at all. They were like really new and green and young. And I think that that was a good thing. I think that for putting together this album, it required kind of this fluid, um, we're going to figure it out as we go mentality. And, uh, I think it seems like that's what Jeff Buckley wanted to do to put this together. He didn't want people seasoned veterans coming in and telling him how to, how to do things, or this is the way that I do it. It was these younger guys that were more impressionable that he could mentor and really work together to come up with what what we end up having on the album. So he assembles the band, and I mean, it's literally weeks before they all you know go into the studio and record. And I think that Michael Teague is like the last one. He's a he's a friend of a of a girl that he's dating at the time named Rebe- Rebecca Moore, and uh, this guy is not really a well seasoned guitar player. And uh, he's more of an actor, and he's played the guitar a little bit, but he hasn't played in a band or anything like that. And uh, one of the cool side stories that I learned along the way is the song So Real, that's really a late addition um, to the album because he's. Uh, they have this other song called Forget Her. And this is the most, like, the labels hearing on the album, they're going, Forget Her is going to be the, the the single. It's the most accessible and it's a song where he's pouring out his heart about the ending of a relationship. Most people who assumed that it was about the, the ending of the relationship with him and Rebecca Moore. And he's, you know, really passionate in the vocals, but for some reason, Jeff Buckley doesn't want that to be on the album. He has these feelings and, and some have speculated that it was because it was a little too personal of a song and talking about his relationship or that maybe it was too kind of middle of the road, um, vanilla kind of not interesting enough, not really showing um, enough of who he was as an artist. So that's one of the reasons that it's taken off the album. But anyway, back to "So Real." Uh, Michael Teague is like plays this thing on the guitar, this unique descending of chords, and Jeff is like play that song that you played for me at your at your house, and that is what ends up being the foundation of So Real. And what you learn is that, you know, Jeff, as a such an experienced musician who studied at the Music Institute, had been given a lot of theory, but Michael, being somebody who didn't have any background, was really doing things that if you don't know about the rules or the theory on a guitar, you can kind of break out of those constraints, right? Like if you don't know, well, I'm not supposed to do that. If you don't know that then you're going to try things that otherwise people would say, well, you shouldn't do that. You can't do that. A guitar that breaks this rule or whatever. And that's really where those chords come from on so real. And they, they record the backing part. And then Jeff goes for a walk around the East village or whatever. And, and where I don't even know where he is at the time. He goes around the walk, hell's kitchen, I think. And he like dreams up the lyrics in like one afternoon and they lay it down. And once they have so real, it replaces Forget Her, and Jeff Buckley says to him, it saved the album because he wanted to get rid of that song. And the executives from Columbia were pissed. They were so pissed that he was dumping off that song off the album. But this is where we can talk a little bit more about the album itself and Last Goodbye and Lilac Wine, you know, a lot of these songs. So Mojo, Pin" and Grace, like I said before, Gary Lucas and – that was um after that benefit concert he pairs up with uh Gary Lucas and Gary Lucas is the one who really writes the music of Mojo Pin and Grace and he shows them to Jeff and Jeff writes lyrics and vocals on top of them and makes them what they are but those were uh, Gary Lu- Lucas songs and even though they parted ways a- amicably um you know Gary kind of allowed him to take those songs for his debut album he's also was invited into the studio to lay down some guitar work on those songs and i think it was kind of given like i understand you know these were pieces that i wrote but but jeff's voice and performance on them really makes them what they are so they're they're his for grace um and then last goodbye you know that was kind of the hit i think it even says in the cover of this vinyl it says features the buckley originals last goodbye and so real Uh, and the instantly classic cover version of leonard cohen's hallelujah that's what it says And if you are a casual Jeff Buckley listener, you probably know Hallelujah. That's probably the one that you're like, I think that's the one that has, I don't know, 200 million streams on Spotify or whatever it is. It's got the most because that version that he has on that album is is definitely like the most listened to Jeff Buckley song of all time. Um, And it's great. It's fantastic. But we all know that that song is because of like singing audition shows and being put here and people covering it being done in a lot of ways it's been done to death um but i can say that jeff buckley's hallelujah is the first version i heard of that song but i uh, right after this period of time i already was familiar with who leonard cohen was because of the soundtrack to the film pump up the volume But I don't think I had, you know, known or heard his version yet, which if you've never heard the Leonard Cohen um, Hallelujah, it's like a dirge. It's much more it's very different in texture and tone and feel. Um, And I think it came out in 1984. But that's the version that, you know, Leonard Cohen is the author of the artist that wrote Hallelujah. But it isn't really given light in a new way until John Cale does a version covering Hallelujah on a tribute to Leonard Cohen album called I'm Your Fan. And that's the first version that Jeff Buckley hears. So when he's covering Hallelujah at Sine and then going on to his album, he only knows it as the John Cale song. He doesn't know it's Leonard Cohen's song yet. You know what I mean? Isn't that fascinating? It's like what we talked about before when I had Allison Hagendorf in hearing a cover, and really not knowing the source, I mean, now it's that doesn't happen as much, right? Because everything is linked to data, metadata. You can click a link. I can literally look up a song, click it, and I can see, oh, this is the person. This is the artist that wrote the song. But back then, you know, uh, things were spread. Jokes from comedians were spread by word of mouth, and songs were passed down and re-recorded, and If you were just a regular person who was consuming music, you would have no idea of somebody's original source of music. It's not like you could just, you know, be like, oh, hallelujah, of course, that song by Leonard Cohen. If you knew Leonard Cohen, you would know. But it's just a fascinating thing, right, Um, that this song that became so big. And I don't even think Jeff Buckley would realize how huge it would become because it wasn't really big um, like it is today until he was gone, long gone. Um, But... Grace was produced by Andy Wallace. Um, Andy Wallace was a f- very famous mixer and producer, and he did you know, Slayer, Run DMC. He did some mixing for Nirvana's Nevermind. I mean, the guy's a legend. Been forever. And they said that he had a very good temperament for kind of getting the best out of his um, people that he was producing. And uh, there's no real record of the Sessions for Grace being strenuous or tense or anything like that. They would be able to lay down the music for every song, usually within a day, without the vocals. And then, you know, it wasn't a a super stressful process. It was more of one of those, like, working hard. Now, one thing that's said about Jeff Buckley is that he here's a guy who performed at Chine and was able to be free form and your notes live just go out into the world and they can change. They're not recorded. But once he was in the studio, he did become a little obsessive over how um, everything would sound, you know, and, and what should we do with this? And he had a hundred different ideas every day with like the different takes and vocal performances and when he could try. Because when your voice is being recorded and the sound is forever, right, then you you realize you go, I need to make some specific choices here, but there was this interesting story, which is, um, according to a story that I read, because of a reviewer that compared Jeff Buckley to Michael Bolton, he stopped the recording of Grace for two days, and I just think that's hilarious to me. Michael Bolton, I feel, was such a punchline in the uh, in the late '90s for people in rock and and uh, in pop culture, especially if you've ever seen the movie. Um, office space where one character's name is Michael Bolton. And you know, that's like 1999. But I just think this is so funny because our parents were listening to Michael Bolton and you know, the guy's got a really great sense of humor. He came out, you know, uh, you know, five, seven years ago doing that song. It's probably been longer when he did the SNL digital short with the Lonely Island guys. And he kind of poked fun at himself. But in the, in the nineties, Michael Bolton was like what your mom and dad were listening to. And, So there was this reviewer that was claiming that from the live at Sinead that Jeff Buckley was a lot like um, Michael Bolton and that he was just another white boy trying to be black. And that just cut to the core of Jeff Buckley and he felt that they were really going after what he was capable of doing and he didn't want to record for two days. And I think he finally got over it and and knew that he, he had more to bring to the table, which thank God he did. But I just think. Like just one review, it's like, are you something like Michael Bolton? He's like, well, that's it. I don't want to do this. No, he didn't quit. But um, but anyway, but he to talk a little bit about the construction of this album. Like I said, Andy Wallace mixed it. I listed the band members before and that cool story about Michael Teague and the guitar parts for so real. But um, the cover, this was a photograph that the record label did not like and it almost didn't make it through. Now, if you're again, if you're listening and you've never seen the cover, it's just Jeff Buckley kind of looking head down. He's holding one of those classic old school vintage microphones and he's got like kind of a sparkly jacket on and his hair's all up and he looks really very heartthrobby. But um, this picture right here was taken by uh, Mary Sear, C-Y-R, which when I saw that, I was like, hey, that's the name of the Pumpkins album. The 2018 album is Sear. And I thought, there's any any connection there, you know, um, but the home of the person that he was taking this picture in, it was a loft that belonged to the avant-garde uh, composer William Buzinski. Um That was his place. He had this unique loft and they were just using it for this photo shoot. But apparently it came together because Jeff had a bunch of vintage clothes and a bag and Mary picks out this kind of sparkly jacket, and puts it on him. And in this photo, apparently he's listening to um, playback of a song that he's working on. He's just kind of listening to getting lost in the moment. And there were a bunch of other photos that they had taken during this time where they were just screwing around and trying to get these images. But this is the one that stuck. Stuck. Sorry, this is the one that stuck. This picture, when the record label saw it, they were like, no, 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 we don't like it. He's He's gone on and on about how he doesn't want to be a pretty boy. And here you do this. He looks like the prettiest boy there is. And they also said he looked like Adam Ant. So there were all sorts of like, no, we don't want it. We don't want it. We don't want it. And there was, you know, fighting on the record cover. There was the, the the they pushed back on dropping forget her for so real. But in the end, he won out and he got to have the record cover the way it is. And I, I think that. I can't imagine grace being anything other than this. Cause it's, it's, it's even more sad now looking at it in a way, you know what I mean? Like knowing that only a couple years later, he'd be gone. That This photo being taken in 1994, we'd only get three more years until he he had passed away and drowned. And so now you have this kind of moment where he doesn't seem to be that present in the photo being taken of him at all, but being lost in his own sound. Um, being lost in his own music. And that's what seems so special about this guy. I don't know why I'm getting emotional. There was something about him. There are artists that come along that you go. There's something within. There's something in there that is that is deeper than I'm even allowed to see. Um. And I... I keep coming back to the the to the father-son thing. And I don't know if it really affected his life that much. But I you know um, my father fucked up with me. You know, I forgive him, but those those wounds, even when you don't know anybody, it cuts deep and um, I think you can hear it I think you can hear I think you can hear in his voice I think you can hear pain and hurt and um. I did not know this was going to happen but The my favorite album my favorite song on this album I haven't even talked about which is Lover You Should Have Come Over and you know it's said that that's about his relationship with Rebecca Moore his one of his most significant um, loves and. Uh, that out, that song crushes me to this day. It is, it is. If you have never, if you've never gotten into Jeff Buckley, if it's been too much, if the dramatic, um, swelling of the voice has been too much for you to take, I just want to beg of you, if you, if you overheard "Hallelujah," listen to "Lover." You should have come over. It really is a spectacular song. Um, that's all I can say about it. Wow, guys, I did not know that would get so heavy um, on here. I don't know why I was feeling as vulnerable as I was, but this album does have a vulnerability to it. It's worth mentioning that, you know, after this album was done and the touring on the album and the pressure to make a second album, which we don't need to talk about sketches for My Sweetheart the Drunk too much, but during a short period of time, Jeff Buckley was in a relationship with Elizabeth Fraser from Fraser from Cocteau Twins. Um, And they recorded a song together, All Flowers in Time, Bend Toward the Sun. Um, That's another beautiful piece of music that you can go out there and search and find on YouTube. Um, It's worth mentioning their relationship because they're really linked together in music. You know, Rebecca Moore was the daughter of a famous um, photographer, Peter Moore. But Elizabeth Fraser, being connected in Cocteau Twins and connected in music, the day that, Jeff Buckley drowned and it was alerted that he died. It's it's uh, it's said that Elizabeth Fraser was in the studio with massive attack and was recording um, teardrop and that that performance was finding was happening right at that moment. Um, so if you go listen to that, that gives that song a whole other uh, piece of, of meaning. But there's other the other pictures in the back here, you know, Buckley walking up the stairs, some live stuff. And then here, let's just take a look on the inside and look at the album art included. Okay, so here he is with the band listener. Sorry, I'm bringing out the inside of the record that shows him with the band, with the guys. I wish I could tell you who was who other than him. But we know that it's Matt Johnson on drums, Michael Teague on guitar, and Ma- Mick Granda on bass. So, anyway. But that's about all I can say about this album. Well, it's worth mentioning, I guess, some of who the cover's originals were. So like I said, Gary Lucas wrote Mojo Pin" and Grace, and then he put his music on it. Then Last Goodbye was one of his originals. Now, Lilac Wine is actually, it was a cover from Eartha Kitt that he had heard. I think it was a song that was much older than that and written by somebody else. But, you know, it was an older uh, piece of music that had been covered by a ton of different artists and and uh, one of the ones that he picked up during the Sine period of time. And then Corpus Christi Carol. That song is like from a 15th century hymn, uh, that was then, you know, composed and arranged by Benjamin Britten, and so that's really a unique piece of music as well to fill out this album. But those those three covers, like I said, um, Corpus Christi Carol, Hallelujah from Leonard Cohen, the John Cale version, and Lilac Wine, those were really aimed to to fill out this album that it would have been incomplete. Uh, if it was only for original songs, well, sorry guys, the tears got me. Um, but that's grace. Uh, I, I realized that, that I kind of let my heart out there on my sleeve a little bit. Um, and I, I didn't realize it would happen, but I think that, like I said at the beginning, the fathers and sons, it's a, it's a complex thing. Um, and, uh, It came out of me in a little ways. And, you know, I I can't speak for Jeff Buckley and what his feelings were about his father. But I only can compare it to my relationship with my sons, my relationship to my own dad, and the feelings I have on that. Um, But I think we'll stop it there. Like I said before, Jeff Buckley moved to Memphis, Tennessee. To work on his next album to get away from the chaos of New York and on May 29th 1997 Jeff Buckley went out into the water to swim his fellow bandmates said he was floating on his back and singing Led Zeppelin and that's the last time he was ever seen and then his body was recovered from the water so no one really knows what happened in those moments next. Was he pulled under? Did he get caught? Um, it's unclear. Um, they just know that he went for a swim and then and then he drowned. And, you know, nobody thinks that he was. I mean, maybe there's some people that have the idea that there was an intentional, um, you know, wanted to leave this world. Or maybe it was just a bad circumstance. And a situation where he got knocked out and drowned either way in 1997 I remember being in high school I was a senior in high school and I remember hearing the news that Jeff Buckley had drowned and I was pretty heartbroken then um gone too soon I know I usually try to make these fun and funny but this one was uh was a heavy one but I kind of knew it would I knew it would be I knew it would be, I knew it would bring up some raw feelings and emotions, but okay. Let's get ourselves cleared up and ready to go. I think I talked on every song in the album. So real. I liked one. Yeah. I didn't really talk about eternal life and dream brother, which are bangers, great songs, eternal life and dream brother. Incredible. I didn't spend any time on those. Um, but those are originals of his as well, but I, I think I'm kind of, I think I'm kind of uh, trailing off here at the end because I'm feeling a little bit feeling a little vulnerable guys feeling like an open wound so with that we'll end it but thank you my waterproofians I'm so glad you joined me for another episode of uh, waterproof records sorry if uh, got you in your feels this morning or this afternoon or tonight or whenever you're listening to the show but uh it's a it's a feeling album what can I say uh thank you for listening I can't do this show without you so please uh tell people about it keep Coming and subscribing and commenting and spreading the word, I can't make the show without you. Uh, once again, shout out to DistroKid, my sponsor. Um, thank you so much. Please uh, let everybody know about waterproof records and help keep the show going for me. But uh, until then, I'll see you next time. Things are gonna change I'm just gonna that. Kind of Waterproof Records Waterproof